Envy can really trip me up. When I went to college in western Massachusetts, I loved learning what it meant to live in a part of the country that had true winters. Snow stayed on the ground, and people kept snowshoes and cross-country skis just lying around. A dear friend of mine had found several pairs of old-fashioned downhill skis that she bought for next to nothing. They were made of solid maple with beautiful leather bindings. She took them to the college's wood shop and learned how to saw them down to make them narrower and how to plane them to make them lighter. She sanded them, re-varnished them, and attached simple cross-country bindings. They were beautiful and they were fun to ski on. I thought the whole project was astonishing. It would never have occurred to me to do it. I coveted the skis. But more importantly, I coveted what it meant to be this person who was both an artist and a scientist and who fit into the New England culture where I felt like an oaky outsider. After our senior year, as we all gathered up our things to head on to our next adventures in life, I came across one pair of these skis in an out-of-the-way closet, haphazardly filled with all the things students leave behind. Without telling her, I took the skis and brought them back to Oklahoma. What on earth was I going to do with them in Oklahoma? (laughs) My transgression was not simply the theft of items belonging to someone else, but an effort to bolster my self-esteem, to make my identity within an object. My taking the skis was an action I imagined would make me feel better about myself. Instead, it resulted in just the opposite. I was not the cool girl with the cool retro skis, but the imposter girl who steals skis. In my 20s, I could have used a strong nuclear family or a community with rituals to help me extricate myself from my dilemma. I just hoped my sin could just fade away over time. Those of you raised Jewish or still attending a synagogue can imagine how I might have found a way to recover from my wrongdoing within the structure of high holy days that just ended last night. During the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish community around the world enters a period of reflection, repentance, and return. Rosh Hashanah begins with a symbolic casting off of sins, ritually throwing bread in a flowing body of water. Then, 
for the next 10 days, each person seeks forgiveness from friends, family, and co-workers, everyone they have wronged in the last year. A critical image within the Jewish imagination is God holding the books of life and death. While God passes judgment during Rosh Hashanah, writing the fate of all for the coming year, the books remain open during the following ten days of awe to provide opportunities to change which book has your name written in it before they are sealed on Yom Kippur. Jews spend the High Holy Days working to amend their behavior and seeking forgiveness for evil done during the year. You may bristle at the personification of God and a divine judging authority and altering history, but the requirement to look at one's life at least once a year, the permission to make amends, and the possibility to start a new year with reinvigorated and repaired relationships is real. Within the 10 days, year in and year out, each member of the Jewish community experiences this cycle of self-examination, works up the courage to say sorry, and perhaps more importantly, is on the receiving end of someone else's reflection and apology. We get better at making apologies with repeated practice and with the experience of how others do them well or awkwardly. While it may appear that God and his books of life and death are the drivers in this annual ritual of atonement, the truly healthy theology rooted in it conveys that humans can act independently and effectively to change the course of their lives and relationships. It teaches us that sin is an act, not a state of being. It supplies a means for being in the here and now, not stuck regretting or avoiding the past. Better still, it provides a way of improving the here and now. Relationships can be put back together. The ripples of pain emanating from harm can be followed by even stronger waves of healing and insight. The mistaken thinking behind many of our sins and offenses against others is our imagining that the harm stays within a confined space and time. For example, believing that an extramarital affair only harms the other spouse and possibly offspring, ignores all the relationships revolving around and woven into the marriage. Presuming we can contain the injuries of one is one of the justifications and denials we indulge in as we cheat on a partner, steal from an employer, or lie about just about everything. We are forgetting that everyone and everything is interwoven 
often in ways we cannot fathom. In my case, of the stolen skis, wasn't that moment of the theft the only harm done? It turns out, no. Since I kept them, as I moved them from place to place, I moved them too. I did go skiing from time to time, but never used those skis. Every time I came across them in my closet or up in an attic, I felt a twinge of remorse. I thought I could ignore the sensation of tightness in my chest, the knot in my throat. (laughs) Right now, the blush in my cheek. Because my friend would never know I had them. And no one in Oklahoma would know they were not really mine. But each sighting or recollection of the skis was a new razor cut within a wounded self-respect. My tarnished self-image inevitably affected other relationships from that point forward in minor and major ways I cannot begin to recount. At some fundamental level, I I sensed in my gut I was untrustworthy. Nor had I considered all the times my friend might have wondered where the skis were. Maybe she chided herself for losing them and wished she had them. Recalling the folk tale about the squabs, the husband eating his wife's roasted squabs, then lying, has a similar escalating domino effect. They argue, then agree to remain silent until someone speaks first. Their silence impinges on their marriage, their work, their friendships, and ultimately a stranger becomes mixed up in all the fallout from the original lie and incorrectly assumes the couple is mute. Reality becomes warped from the single unresolved transgression, that first lie. If anyone is watching the series Breaking Bad, it is a highly charged example of the spreading effects of sin. I promise no spoiler alerts here, but if you have not watched, it is wrapping up its final season. It follows a chemistry teacher, Walter White's plunge into the dangerous world of drugs and crime. After his diagnosis of stage 3 cancer and prognosis of only two years to live. With a new sense of fearlessness and a wish to ensure his family's financial security, he evolves from a mild family man to a kingpin in the drug trade. The well-written and acted series is a brutal and violent catalog of all the ways a person's transgressions have an impact far beyond the individual. So again, the Jewish tradition provides a roadmap for clearing up the injuries before their contamination oozes very far. While the days of awe call for for individual apologies, it is a full group project. Worship, specific prayers, Ritual meals and fasts, 
all work together to create a highly receptive congregation sensitized to forgiveness and compassion. On Yom Kippur, at the end of the High Holy Days, Jews attempt to mend their relationship with God. First you make up with your neighbor, and then you make up with God. If this notion of God is off-putting, imagine Yom Kippur is about mending harm within the community, mending all the unseen, ripped parts of the independent web of all existence. One critical part of Yom Kippur services involves reciting a public confession of sins. This formal list is said ten times over the course of the Yom Kippur services. It begins addressing God. For the sin which we have committed before you under duress and willingly, and for the sin which we have committed before you by hard-heartedness, for the sin which we have committed before you inadvertently, and for the sin which we have committed before you with an utterance of the lips. The prayer continues in its hypnotic intensity as a useful index of human failings that goes on for 50 more lines. It's a thorough reminder of all the ways we miss the mark and damage relationships. By deceiving a fellow man, by disrespect for parents and teachers, by foolish talk in business dealings, by embezzlement, and by a confused heart. And it ends with a list of legal offenses. For the sins for which we incur the penalty of lashing for rebelliousness and of the four forms of capital punishment executed by the court, stoning, burning, decapitation, and strangulation. We have made some progress. Can you picture what it would mean to stand and repeatedly recite this list with your friends, your neighbors, clergy, and strangers? How would you be changed by hearing it ten times every year? Can you imagine how this list transforms the heart of the whole congregation? With Yom Kippur, the Jewish New Year creates the possibilities for everyone to have a fresh start, a clean slate, unburdened by the past. So I've experienced the lightness that comes with formally confessing. In 12-step addiction recovery groups, there's a process for owning up to your mistakes, then atoning for them. Like the Jewish holidays, the 12-step work is done in community, never by yourself. Step four asks that we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Then step five requires admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. When I was spending time in 12-step meetings, as I wrote my own moral inventory, I recalled that I once had stolen a pair of skis. I wrote that down on my list. When I'd made an appointment with the person guiding me through the steps, my sponsor, I had to tell about this theft. But it turns out not to be so hard 
The funny part in making a list is I realized my mistakes and sins are far from unique and vast. I had committed some version of every sin that is cataloged on Yom Kippur. Hard-hearted? Oh, yes. Disrespect for parents and teachers? Endless. Embezzlement? I couldn't think of an instance, but how is stealing any different? And I had stolen. I survived reading my personal register of mistakes and felt great relief afterward. The confession is not the final goal. Step eight asks that we make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. I now had to write down the name of my college friend. In step nine, I was asked to make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I wrote my friend a letter and had someone else read it so it was clear and my motives pure, then mailed it. The letter allowed us to reconnect. She laughed about the missing skis and said she indeed had wondered what had happened to them. She forgave me, and we've stayed in touch with Christmas cards and occasional phone calls. I felt the same way that clearing the air is described in that story about the squabs. I wanted to hug my friend, laugh, bask in the joy of having this part of my life and this precious connection repaired. So, our Unitarian Universalist tradition does not have any formal annual rituals for atonement. And I view this as a significant missed opportunity. Making use of monthly themes could be one way we at Hope might reclaim this sacred spiritual reparative work. For example, we could use the months we explore forgiveness or transformation to develop our own tradition and work together as a congregation. In the meantime, there are many simple spiritual practices you could start today in order to clean up your sins. In writing this sermon, I discovered there are apps. Of course, there are apps. (laughs) So if you find a great app, send it to me. I will put them out for us all. But one of the easiest ways is to keep a note card by your bed to review how the day went and catch any mistakes or transgressions before they metastasize. Keep a journal with each evening's answers to locate unhelpful patterns or habits. My favorite list has six simple questions. Was I resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid today? Have I harmed anyone today? Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself that should be discussed with another person at once? Was I kind and loving toward all? What could I have done better today? And you're getting to know me, aren't you?
I have cards for us. <laughs> I think I may not have had enough show and tell in my life. That's all I can think. <laughs> So at the end of Yom Kippur, Jewish members greet each other with Gemar Hatima Tova, a wish for God to write their names on the book of life before the book is sealed until next year. My wish for each other, for us today, is the same, that all our names are in the book of life and that we enjoy this time together, making apologies and amends to sweeten and strengthen our families and our congregation. May it be so.